The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Chinese Whispers with me, Cindy Yu. Every episode, I'll be talking to journalists, experts and long-time China watchers about the latest in Chinese politics, society and more. There'll be a smattering of history to catch you up on the background knowledge and some context as well. How do the Chinese see these issues? In August, pictures and videos of a thousand-strong Wuhan pool party went viral. I wrote about it at the time for The Spectator, and I explored China's return to normality and how it got there, just so much quicker than others. Three months on, the UK and much of the West is still battling with COVID, while it's no longer the top concern for most Chinese. In this longer episode than usual, I take a deep dive into China and COVID, finding out exactly what life is like there now, how it got to this stage, and the economic cost that it has incurred. My guests today are from all over the world. Emily Fung is NPR's Beijing correspondent. Professor Yan Zhou Huan is a public health expert at the Council on Foreign Relations in New York. And the economist George Magnus, author of Red Flags, Why Seize China is in Jeopardy, joins me from Oxford. I spoke to them over the course of the last fortnight. First, I spoke to Emily Fung. I asked her what life is like there right now. I hate to say this, and I don't, I don't want to rub this in, but it's basically back to normal. Of course, we're living in this giant China-sized bubble. Foreigners can't get into China. It is now difficult to find flights to leave. But within China itself, things have picked back up where they were before the epidemic. I mean, businesses are open again. Restaurants are full. People go clubbing. People I went clubbing. to a rave a few <gasps> weeks ago. Yes. <sighs> I went to a techno club a few days ago. People are holding conferences again. Domestic airlines are full. So it's not that COVID is completely gone. There have been imported cases. There have been a couple of isolated domestic transmissions in mostly port cities. China says that's due to imported frozen food. That though That's up for debate right now. But long story short, it's kind of totally normal as long as you don't leave China. And how long has it been normal for? Because I know that Beijing went under a partial lockdown in June. Is that right? Yes, it was. It was basically totally normal by May. Beijing then had a small outbreak linked back to a produce market that they then chalked up to imported frozen fish from Europe. They contained that lockdown really quickly with measures that you now see Beijing using whenever they have isolated cases popping up around the country. They first locked down the entire city or town where just simply one or two cases pop up. They contact trace every single person three degrees removed from the person who has been diagnosed, including asymptomatic people, and they keep them under medical observation until they develop symptoms and until they're tested multiple times as negative. That's what allows the country to still continue operating, even when you do have these tiny, tiny outbreaks happening in various cities. Mm. But yeah, as you mentioned, June, Beijing went under lockdown. And then about a month and a half later, things had returned to normal because they had tested everyone and found all of the cases linked to that market. And I assume when you say that nightclubs are open, there's no social distancing. Absolutely not. <laughs> not that I would know. I, I, my clubbing days are long behind me, but I have seen many full nightclubs 
And, you know, the live music scene has been back. Of course, it's impossible to book international guests, but that's a rare opportunity for domestic artists to shine. Mm. And then there were also incredible pictures, I mean, as well as the Wuhan pool party, which was in August, there were also incredible pictures on the weekend of October 1st, which in China is Guoxingjie, which is the founding of the nation and that golden weekend of people going domestic traveling you know there's a phrase in chinese which is mountains and seas made of people and so people really life really is going back to normal in terms of domestic travel as well yes i mean something like half a billion trips were made over october holiday that's still slightly less than the number of trips people made last year, probably because some people lost their jobs and just didn't have money to travel this year. But by and large, China is on its way to recovering, both in terms of activity, but also economics mm. after the epidemic. Um, Emily, we don't hear much about people losing their jobs. In the Western reporting of China's dealing with COVID, it's either that they are covering everything up, um, the numbers are fake, and so on, or it's that China has got on top of it and democracy uh, is on its last legs. But the truth must be somewhere in the middle. One thing that we don't often hear reported about is the job losses that must be happening in China. Over a third of China's total workforce are what you call migrant workers, low-skilled Chinese who have to leave their hometowns or villages to find work in, say, construction in bigger cities. And they often stay in these adopted cities year-round and post money home to family members. They must have had a tough time keeping their jobs in this incredibly uncertain time in often blue-collar jobs. Exactly. They've had the toughest time. And they work in the informal sector, so it's been very difficult to fully capture the extent that they've lost their jobs or had reduced wages. Many of these people travel in between provinces, so you have this extra challenge of trying to figure out where they're working and where they are at any given time. In reality, during the worst of the pandemic, many of these people simply returned to their villages or their hometowns because they had lost the temporary gigs that would keep them in big cities like Beijing or Shanghai. And at least in their home villages, while they're not earning any money, they can live off the land, they farm crops. It's a subsistence existence, and they can't subsidize their family members that way, but at least they can survive until the next job hiring period. These people often do not qualify for unemployment insurance either, which is ironic for a nominally socialist country <laughs> like China. And China did not give out these in-kind cash payments that many countries, including the U.S. where I'm from, did. Basically, you know, a check in the mail. China did not choose to do that, though many economists argued for it. So we're not seeing the full picture of the economic impact of the epidemic, but it's definitely hit people at the lowest rungs of the socioeconomic ladder, the hardest. And of course, these are also the people who are the most invisible who are least mm. able to advocate for themselves. We see that pattern in many, many countries, but it's especially true in China. So you think that with China's very vibrant online culture, of course, controlled and censored in, in, in many ways, but there are not many middle class people, presumably, who care about these migrant workers or know about their plight? No. No, they don't have that much visibility. And so you saw a lot of Chinese media celebrating, for example, revenge spending mm. after the worst of the pandemic and the fact that luxury items were indeed selling out in volumes not seen before the pandemic. But that's because people who were already rich were still rich after the pandemic and they were buying more stuff because they were bored and cooped up at home. And people who were living in poverty were still living in poverty and had no jobs and were not visible. Yeah. And just Keeping on the theme of public opinion, how have the public, if as much as is possible to talk about China, which of course is difficult because there's no true impartial public opinion polling, so I guess a lot of it will be qualitative and anecdotal, but based on what you've seen, have the public welcomed the government's response? 
Completely. There actually have been a number of polling experts and sociologists who have tried to do public opinion polling over the years and and recently done polls about the public reaction to government responses during COVID in China. And what they have found, I don't remember the exact numbers, but what they have found is a surge in pride and also nationalism at the way China handled COVID. Negative sentiment was certainly higher in the midst of the epidemic when there was a lot of uncertainty about what was going on, whether medical procedures were actually working to treat COVID, and whether the numbers China was reporting were true. I mean, there was a lot of doubt even on the ground in China Mm. about the first wave and then the second cluster in Beijing that we mentioned earlier. But now that they're seeing how bad the pandemic has gotten in other countries, most notably the United States and and various European countries, Chinese people feel a lot of pride that at least they locked down things quickly and stopped the chain of transmission much faster than other places. They paid a really high price up front, but most people I've talked to now feel like that's that's worth it. And that's led to a really worrying gap in public opinion, right? Because you have people in other countries who increasingly blame China for how bad the pandemic is in their countries, rightly or wrongly so, and people in China who who feel more and more nationalistic about China's role in containing the pandemic. And that might lead to some kind of foreign policy conflict in the the future, because leaders feel empowered to take stronger stances that oppose one another. Mm, Very true. It brings to mind this Harvard Kennedy School study that I looked at. You know, they've been public opinion polling Chinese people since 2003. And so they compare it year on year with their own data. And this year is the highest satisfaction with the government ever recorded. So I think mm-hmm. I think you're definitely right about that. And yeah. when it comes to evaluating public opinion, obviously, it matters whether or not that public is informed. And in China, the public is often informed in a different way or less so than in the West. So I guess on things like how badly the West is doing or on the potential for vaccine, or how well China itself is doing, is the public being fully informed on the picture? How much doctoring is there by state media? There's not so much doctoring as there is a selective inclusion of which news to report and which news gets left out. So there definitely is a preponderance of CCTV news segments about how bad the pandemic is in the U.S., the fact that numbers are rising by record numbers every week, and that China's vaccine efforts are way ahead of other candidates, and they've began human trials in many countries in far greater numbers than other vaccine candidates. All of this might be objectively true, but it leads to a skewing of how bad the pandemic looks and how badly Western governments handled the pandemic in the eyes of a Chinese television or newspaper reader. So a lot of people have asked me once they find out that I work for an American outlet or that I have relatives in the U.S., is what I see on Xinhua, the state news agency, or CCTV, the state broadcaster, true? Is it really that bad in the U.S.? So people have some doubts, but the general impression is that the world is burning outside of China and that it's much safer to stay in this little China bubble than it is to venture out. And Emily, how much have Western successes in vaccine developments been reported? We've now got three candidates from Oxford, Pfizer and Moderna that are realistic contenders and might be starting to be rolled out as soon as next month. They have. They have. People in China are very keenly following news about a virus. But again, 
Chinese vaccine candidates dominate attention here. And part of the reason why they dominate so much attention is they have already begun vaccinating hundreds of thousands of people within China, some of whom have traveled abroad, so traveled to other countries other than China. So there's been a lot of buzz in China about whether or not you should get an experimental vaccine that is undergoing human trials but has not yet gotten regulatory approval for commercial use. Many people who are trying to to get a slot, you know, a, a vaccine shot, even if it's experimental, has become a bit of a limited, scarce commodity here. But there's a lot of pride that, that China has moved quickly on, on this aspect and that they're giving it away even before it's offered to the rest of the world to Chinese citizens, mostly state employees. I read your excellent article for NPR on this, and it seems like some of the employees were a bit confused about why they were getting the vaccine, because, as you wrote, they weren't going abroad. And some of them thought it was compulsory for them to get this vaccine, but it hasn't had regulatory approval there. Right. I think that speaks to just how things work within a state bureaucracy in China, where the state dominates many, many aspects of life. So China justifies using these experimental vaccines for emergency use. But many of the people I talked to in the article you mentioned don't really fit the definition of emergency use. I mean, some of them are restaurant workers, office managers, people who don't work in medicine, would not meet a person with COVID, China barely has COVID, or are not going abroad where they might be in a COVID hotspot. It was simply that state-owned enterprises had been given this preferential access and then asked their employees to comply with vaccination orders. And when people are told to do something by their state employer, they do it. Other people felt honored that they had been chosen. Many of the people I spoke to were actually very, very, were very low in the socioeconomic ladder. They were construction workers. They were going abroad to work in African countries mostly, but also Southeast Asian ones on built and road projects for state-owned firms in China. So these are not always necessarily very well-off white-collar workers. Some of these people, in fact, might have been quite poor and would not have been able to afford a vaccine by themselves, but had been told that this was part of their package for going abroad. What about anti-vaxxers? You get that quite a lot, I assume, in the US. You, get, you certainly get that a small minority of people in the UK who are suspicious of a vaccine. Some of them are just suspicious of vaccines in general. Others are suspicious of the way that any vaccine would have been rushed through compared to the normal development timeline of a vaccine. Do those people exist in China? Are there people saying to you, actually, I'd rather not be in the first wave of people receiving an injection? They have, but the reasons are not because they don't believe in vaccines. They just don't see why they should get an injection before it's approved by regulators, which is totally fair. These people say to me, listen, I don't want to be, they say, I don't want, I don't want to be the sell by shoe. I don't want to be the little white mouse for mm-hmm. big vaccine and pharmaceutical firms in China. I want to get the vaccine once it's proven to be safe. And I think that's totally fair. Yeah. And just going back on to lockdown, Emily. You mentioned that people are still, having seen the results of China's approach, are quite happy with China's approach. But we in the West often see really horrible images and videos of people either, you know, welded into their homes in the first wave. Or, for example, in Xinjiang, there were pictures of that local lockdown in Urumqi, where an old man was handcuffed to a gate in his apartment complex. Are people in China seeing that happen to their neighbors? And what do they think about that? That has definitely happened, the the, the incidents you've described, but they're in the minority. And that's how people justify these lockdown measures. By and large, what people are going to experience are going to be stay-at-home orders, social distancing, 
quite intrusive inquiries about the status of their health daily from local community workers based on where they live, the inability to travel or the requirement to quarantine even while traveling domestically at the height of the epidemic. That is what most people experienced. And to them, that was completely reasonable, particularly in retrospect, when they saw how bad things could get without those lockdown measures. Mm, So it's a no brainer between liberty and security, I guess, or liberty and health in this case. Yes. And, And keep in mind that people had practice with SARS. So this whole mask wearing business had really only stopped two or three years ago. When I first moved to Beijing five years ago, people were still were wearing masks, you know, surgical masks in the subway stations because they had experienced SARS and that fear of being infected by through respiratory fluids had not disappeared yet. And so it was very easy to bring that habit back with the coronavirus. Are people still wearing masks today? Yes, they are voluntarily. Beijing no longer mandates people wear masks, but people still choose to. Other places that I've traveled to outside of big cities, but including places like Shanghai, they long stopped wearing masks. But you still see every so often, you know, maybe one out of 10, one out of five people still choosing to mask up in public spaces. Mm. And I want to pick you up on that difference in Beijing compared to the rest of China. The feeling that I get is because Beijing is home to China's top leadership, the politicians who are, let's face it, all in their 60s and 70s, and so at-risk groups from coronavirus. Has Beijing as a whole city been sort of cocooned and sheltered, shielded because of these leaders being there? Definitely. I had a friend who described the difference in coronavirus lockdown approaches between Beijing and Shanghai as Beijing being ironclad. There was absolutely no room for negotiation and no dialing down the intensity of restrictive measures. Whereas in Shanghai, it was flexible. It was like a rubber ball. It would bounce and, you know, it would change shape depending on how the circumstances were at the time. With Beijing, they, even after, for example, the lockdown in Wuhan, the city where the coronavirus was first discovered, when the lockdown in Wuhan was lifted, people started leaving and they could take trains and flights to any part of China except for Beijing. Mm. I was stuck there at the time and I had to get official permission to get back to where I lived in Beijing. For a while, international flights that were starting to come in from other countries with COVID were allowed to land in Shanghai and Guangzhou, all of these big Chinese cities, but they were not allowed to enter Beijing up until a few months ago. So Beijing has always been the most protected, the most cocooned. And as a result, it's been very difficult for local businesses and people who rely on being able to travel freely to exist in the city. Mm. I can only imagine what the Chinese leadership think when they see Trump getting infected with coronavirus, Boris Johnson almost dying from coronavirus and now having to go back into self-isolation again. The Chinese people as well must be quite bemused. I wouldn't say bemused. They were completely shocked when Trump got coronavirus. It was shocking to them to see a world leader get sick from the coronavirus. You would think that he would have more protection. For example, in China, during celebrations for the 70th anniversary of China's battle against the U.S. and the Korean War. Some journalists, including myself, were invited to this ceremony. And because we were going to be in the same giant atrium as President Xi Jinping, all of us had to get nasal swabs the day before, then quarantine in a state hotel, then go to this event the next day. I unfortunately was out of town, but that shows you the level of protection for someone like Xi Jinping. Chinese people expected the same thing for President Trump, but clearly that didn't happen. Mm. And Emily, finally, I just want to touch on the digital aspect of China's post-COVID life in terms of the health codes that most people are made to have or everyone sort of needs to have if they have a smartphone right now. Can you tell us about what this health code looks like, what it does, where, where do you need to have it? 
So you have it on your phone. Usually if you enter any kind of commercial establishment before you go in, they'll ask you to scan another QR code and that will prompt a response on your phone. Supposedly it scans where you've traveled over the last two weeks at any close contacts you may have had who then were later diagnosed with COVID. And that will manifest in either green, good, red, bad, or yellow health code, meaning that you should go into quarantine. But to this day, every health code, and there are dozens of them, depending on which province and city you are in China, every health code has a different algorithm for the type of informational inputs it uses. And so it's not completely clear to anyone really how these apps determine whether or not you are safe to enter a public space or to get on a flight. And what happens if you have amber or red on your code instead of green? Are you able to appeal that decision? You can You can contact the... You know, this has never happened to me. You can contact your local community worker. There are different Shouqi people around your neighborhood. You can ask. You can contact the Beijing municipal government. But normally people just wait it out. They just stay at home and it turns green after two weeks at most. But I do have to say, even in Beijing, this health app has become much less required. Most establishments have now dialed back their coronavirus screening measures. So you no longer have to provide your temperature when you walk into my office building, for example, or most malls and restaurants. And you rarely have to provide your health code as well. So it is now possible to walk around without, without a health code. Emily Fong, thanks so much. Now let's take a look at China's COVID response. In my article, I called it the zero COVID strategy, where even one case of the infection was enough to lock down a city of millions. I spoke to Professor Yan Zhonghuan, a global health expert at the Center for Foreign Relations in New York. I asked him to first start by explaining what the key aspects of China's COVID strategy are. Well, when we talk about the China's COVID strategy, we talk about the COVID strategy after China successfully brought the disease under control, right, after March, right? So, you know, this is a strategy that China used to deal with the sporadic outbreaks, like uh, what we found in Beijing, Qingdao, mm-hmm. Xinjiang, and also in Wuhan in May. So, you know, this is a strategy uh, which is becoming sort of a model that China uses to deal with the sporadic outbreaks. You know, basically, no matter where you find the disease, as long as there is like one case or more than one case, you know, the government is going to immediately launch mass testing measures, which uh, would be followed by, you know, this uh, contact tracing, quarantines, (laughs) and treatment of people if uh, they're confirmed to be infected, you know, and then the purpose is actually to make sure, right, there's zero case. So this is the what they call the Qingling, right, zero, uh, literally translating to zero clearance. You know, so the the objective of that strategy is to make sure there's zero infection in the locality. You know, and uh, so this is basically by all means, you know, at all cost approach <laughs> to disease prevention and control. It's an incredible comparison, actually, because you're speaking to me from New York and I'm, I'm in London at the moment. When you think about what triggers a local lockdown and mass testing in China, you know, in Beijing, when, when it went under its partial lockdown in June, the highest daily peak was 49 cases in a city of 22 million people, whereas in the West, we talk about cases per 100,000. 
accepting, of course, that there is always going to be some small level of the virus in society. Yeah, absolutely. This is a very, you know, for for us in the West, it's very difficult to you just a you know fathom, you know, how you know the government would spend or you know all these resources and capabilities in dealing with just you know, several. Uh, sometimes even one case, you know, that because uh, here, if like in New York or in London, if you found that, well, this we are successful ma- or managed to bring down the cases to one or two, we would really like uh, you know <laughs> celebrate, right? <laughs> but in, to China, this is like one of their biggest threats, you know. Yes, Yandong. And when you talk about mass testing in the UK, we've seen that with Liverpool over the last couple of weeks. But in China, this mass testing strategy has been used repeatedly already throughout the year of cities of tens of millions of people. And I want to ask you about compliance. Presumably, compliance is not a problem in China because of how strictly it's enforced. Absolutely. Why? Well, again, well, this one of the features of that uh, that model is that you know, by all means and at all costs. You know that. Well, this is clearly not based on risk assessment. It's not based on epidemiological surveys. You know, in fact, this is like a, totally a secondary concern because local leaders, you know, not the, the uh, you know epidemiologists or scientists on the driver's seats. Because for them, this is after you know one case is identified immediately that is going to trigger like this mass testing, even sealing off the cities. But they clearly you can see how you know scientists, epidemiologists, public health experts, you know, they well, this is like uh, their role basically is to implement the strategy and not to make uh, the decisions. So China is not as a phrase we hear in the UK quite a lot following the science when it locks down too strictly. So can you explain that a little bit more for people who are not epidemiologists, probably majority of the listeners of this podcast, what made China's response before March, you know, in the emergency phase of things, more scientific, and the stuff that's happened since less scientific? Well, well we know that, uh, for example, with China, start the uh, trigger this the uh, draconian, uh, you know, dramatic response to the outbreak in Wuhan in late January, in part because, for example, Dr. Zhong Nanshan played a crucial role in confirming, you know, that the virus was human-to-human transmission virus, right? And uh, that when other uh, public health experts convinced the Chinese leader that they should uh, adopt this, the lockdown measures immediately. And uh, then in, uh, in February, when the healthcare system in Wuhan was overwhelmed, you know, by, you know, this rising demand, you know, for hospitalization you know, and testing, he suggested that, that China um, build uh, those the makeshift hospitals, they called Fang Chang Yuan, right? So 16 mm-hmm. ho- uh, such hospitals were built that managed to admit uh, more than 10,000 uh, patients. Well, since then, the, the thing is that uh, after they tried this model, right, first in Wuhan, then in Beijing, right, they, they just started to popularize that model nationwide, right? So if you are a local leader, like a mayor or party secretary or in a locality, and there was one case found in your jurisdiction, the, the natural response is to launch mass testing, you know, testing everybody, and then uh, potentially also sealing of uh, certain high-risk regions, if not the entire city. 
use the pandemic control as example, right? So ideally find out, you know, that how many people infected, right? That you want to adopted approach, right? Like that is more flexible, you know, that is maybe rely on like sample testing, you know, which because instead of comparing to like a mass testing, it's, you know, it's more cost effective, you know, but for the local leaders, you know, that becomes more demanding in terms of the requirement on the state capacities just to differentiate who is infected, who is not. So why not just testing everybody, right? Mm-hmm. You paint a picture of local authorities having control over what's happening now. I think that's something that maybe Western listeners might not have thought about very often in that China's often seen as centralised top down, but it's actually much more regionalised and fractured, maybe in a way that our listeners can appreciate between devolved nations. It has that localization of response often in regions. Well, yeah, even though it's like an authoritarian state, but the local you know, subnational governmental officials could still play an important role in the policy process. And here, what we found is that this incentive structure of the local government officials still is heavily affected by the central government because if the central government tell them, you know, that you should make sure no cases being found in your locality, right? You know, I don't care, right? You know what methods you use, but make sure there's zero infections. You know, so you know that provided very uh, strong incentives for local governments you know, to pursue such a strategy, right? Because that's the probably the most effective one in terms of quickly stem the spread of the virus and achieving that zero clearance goal in a short period of time. You know, so that as far as the congruence between policy objectives, you know, and uh, the actual outcomes is concerned, but that uh, is considered successful. Right. Mm. And we have seen local officials being fired from their jobs when, when local clusters happen. What does that mean for the infrastructure of public health in China? By which I mean, if local officials have an incentive to report good news, but a disincentive to report bad news, then could they be hiding true things that are happening, covering things up that we saw initially in Wuhan, for example? Is it, could that be, still be happening now? Well, it is there. That the possibility remains there, again, right, in that sort of top-down political system, you know, where, you know, the local officials, they are only accountable to their superiors, actually their immediate superiors, right? The, uh, so they have strong incentive, you know, to make them look good, you know, when they're reporting things, you know, to their immediate bosses, you know. So that misreporting, underreporting continue to be a concern, but in the meantime, it also right, created this incentive to adopt this cookie-cutter approach, right? Chinese called the yi dao che, right, in policy implementation. And when you talk about that cookie-cutter approach, you mean one-size-fits-all, i.e. the heavy-handed model that you find an infection, you lock down, you do mass testing and repeat. There's no flexibility allowed for local responses. And, and also heavy-handed, in my view, is the flight ban. You know, one of the things that is a legacy from before March is this flight ban where a country that was the fourth most visited before coronavirus has essentially, since early this year, 
refused any foreign visitors except for diplomatic visitors or other exceptional circumstances. And even for many Chinese nationals abroad, they're finding it difficult to get home. I mean, that just seems to me pretty mad in a modern world. Yeah, well, China still has its concerns because it's considered one of the most safest places now on Earth by in terms of the threat of the pandemic. But in the meantime, it faces the threats of uh, imported cases, where that is deemed as the, like the uh, major concern, but in terms of a restarting or outbreak in the country. So it has been uh, very uh, strict in terms of preventing uh, the spread of imported cases. And certainly it cannot say, well, especially to those who hold a Chinese passport that don't return to the country, right? So oh, they're, they're doing everything they can by right. lessening the amount of flights. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but even for those, the Chinese citizens, you might notice that more recently, they make those more demanding by asking that, that you not only need to show proof uh, you are uh, like nuclear acid test negative, you also need to prove that, that you are antibody. <laughs> COVID antibody test negative, you know, and that the test needs to be completed like within uh, 48 hours, something. Wow. So that basically many of the Chinese who staying uh, overseas Chinese will say, this is basically saying, don't come back, you know, basically. Yeah. Definitely. And, and then when they do get back, if they do get back, they have to go through two weeks of quarantine, which quarantine in China is not really what people mean by quarantine in the West. Can you explain what goes on in Chinese quarantine? Yeah, well, you hear why well, in the West, we talk about the quarantine, basically it's home quarantine, right? The, uh, but there, right, the, when you are like arriving in China, you are subject to two week quarantine in designated facilities, usually it's a hotel, right? So mostly right, people would stay in that uh, hotel for two weeks. You're not allowed to, you're going to stay in the room, strictly in the room. You're not allowed to even step out, you know, and uh, they're going to send uh, the food, you know, at, the, uh, at the, your door, you know, the, uh, and you need to pay out of pocket for the <laughs> quarantine. Well, the, the, basically the hotel are expenses, you know, it's covered out of your pocket. So at least there's one industry that's doing okay in COVID. <laughs> well, another industry is those testing the industry, yes. right? <laughs> and Yan Zhong, why do you think that China has taken such an approach to this public health issue? I've got two theories. One theory is that Chinese people in general have a very hypochondriac attitude to illnesses. I remember growing up in China where if you have a cold, you'd be carted off to the hospital and get an IV drip, even though you would get better by yourself in a few days. Anyway, I remember moving over here into the UK the first few years, my mum thought it was a human rights abuse that we couldn't just turn up at the hospital for every small cough that we had. That's my first theory, that Chinese people are more sensitive about being ill in general. My second theory is that the Communist Party has seen this as a test of legitimacy, partly because of that hypochondria that comes from the Chinese Chinese people, that public opinion thinks you need to get on top of it, but also just because it looks good to get on top of something like this. So I think those two things are contributing to the sort of tingling attitude. But what do you think? Well, I think what also has something to do with that traumatic experience in Wuhan, right? They learn how this is a highly transmissible disease, you know, how, oh, and this also potentially lethal and have, t has taken heavy toll on the economy and the society, you know, so the last thing they want is to uh, 
uh, repeat what has happened uh, in Wuhan. And now, especially now when China is already at the situation under control, right? If you know this, the sort of like a sporadic, isolated outbreak leads to a nationwide、uh, second wave outbreak. That means all they have been invested means nothing, right? And what about the sustainability of this approach? You mentioned the resources that is taken, for example, and also. You know, we'll see in the West lockdown having such an impact on other medical conditions because of waiting lists getting longer, for example, education being put aside. Are those sorts of issues happening in China as well? Well, I think well in terms of sustainability, right? Well, this far the the government believe right that、uh, well, there's certainly what、well, there's. This cost, like mass testing, by Wuhan, it cost、uh, like nine hundred million yuan. You know, the,、uh, that was about one hundred twenty million dollars, something like that. You know, and this is all by this, the the government foot the bills. You know, and because the testing is free, you know, they believe it's worth the while, right? In terms of.、Uh, Preventing, you know, the outbreak. You know, basically that is lot out of control. You know, so well, this is how they justify. You know, that the other money they have been spent.、Mm. Uh, they say, you know, in,、uh, instead of you know waiting until you have like more than two hundred cases, three hundred cases, then taking action. Why we do it now? You know, I found this is very interesting because we know what in terms of risk assessment, right? You has has two components. Right. On the one hand, you need to、uh, evaluate the consequences of the outbreak. Right. That is, if right, that this is out、mm-hmm. of control, right, the the consequences might be huge. But in the meantime, you also needs to look at the other side of the coin. That is the likelihood. What's the likelihood of that developing to a large, major outbreak we saw in Wuhan, right, in January and early and February, right? But the 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 government seems to be convinced in that that doesn't really matter. You know, it's the the consequences. You know, that justify you know, the means. So, are the Chinese people and government holding out for vaccine? I know that there are four in stage three trials in China. So, is that what they're waiting for? Yeah, they already, as you may know, they already inoculating a large population in China, right? The、uh, my、uh, well, initial estimate was that more than four hundred thousand people have been inoculated, but with these reports from Zhejiang province, it seems that even that we have probably underestimated how many people already vaccinated. Because in Zhejiang, they announced that they already administered seven hundred. Forty thousand doses just in that province alone. Wow, I, I don't think I did realize that actually. But Yanzhong, given China's sometimes dodgy history with vaccines, medicines, that sort of reliability part of things, you know, listeners will remember the milk baby formula scandal before, and then the recent vaccine scandal when forty vaccines were given out. How much trust is there in a vaccine rolling out? And do you do you think that it's this the right thing to do to, you know, essentially do it within this year to <laughs> mass vaccinate people? Well, that is certainly a, a concern. I think you know one of the reasons why you know the the vaccine makers you know.、Uh, Decided to inoculate people in China even before the、uh, completed data for the、uh, 
clinical trials become available is that uh, they want to test the receptivity you know, of the Chinese people to the Chinese-made vaccines. You know, given that this history, right, of this vaccine scandals on uh, issue of safety and efficacy over the past years. But in the meantime, I think they are probably confident that uh, their vaccines are safe because this seems that uh, the first, uh, the stage one, stage two trials seems to support, you know, that the vaccines, especially this va- the, the two vaccines that are based on those inactivated the virus technologies, which uh, often uh, was believed is considered safer, you know, uh, less likely to cause uh, severe adverse reactions, you know, so uh, they seem to be confident that this vaccine uh, is uh, safe. And Yanzhong, just finally, I think any conversation at least happening in the West when it comes to China and COVID will be asking whether or not you can trust the numbers, you know, in terms of infections or deaths or just how widespread the disease is in China. From your expert opinion, do you know if we can trust the numbers and how do you know if we can trust the numbers? Well, you also, you always, you need to take those numbers with a grain of salt, right? Uh, Especially when it uh, involves those uh, perverse incentives of the government officials to fabricate data, to make them look good, you know, the... uh, so well, it all depends, right? Well, you clearly, for example, during the uh, the Wuhan, or this, as even the government itself admitted, right, the initial stage of the outbreak in Wuhan, there was this widespread, the like underreporting, misreporting that led to the government actually mm-hmm. adjusted the figures by right, in terms of mortality and uh, the incidences, right, uh, the cases. I mean. But you know, if we look at those numbers after that, right in Qingdao, in Wuhan, right there's the mass testing figures that shows how many people are infected. I think this number is probably more trustworthy, right there, because you look at the incentives, right. Really, they don't have that much strong incentive, you know, to cover up like the number of uh, symptomatic cases. <laughs> Thank you, Yanzhong. And lastly, in all of the debates surrounding COVID, lives are often contrasted against livelihoods. But it occurred to me that I hadn't heard much about the cost to China's lockdown. And that may be mitigated by the fact that its lockdown has been strict, but relatively shorter. And the numbers seem to reflect that. Q3 growth figures for China's GDP stand at 4.9%. So to conclude this podcast, I spoke to The Economist George Magnus, author of Red Flags, Why Seize China is in Jeopardy, to find out about the true economic picture on the ground. I started by asking him to update us on the state of the economy. So, as I think everybody knows, the big hit to China in terms of its economy actually happened a little bit earlier than it did in the United Kingdom or other most other countries. So, the first quarter was a bit of a nightmare for China. And according to official statistics, the economy plunged uh, by sort of a double-digit amount and was about 7% smaller in the first quarter of this year than it was a year ago. But subsequently, the the turnaround really began around sort of a little bit towards the end of April, beginning of May. Certainly by June, the economy was kind of back on a growth path. And I think it's fair to say that it has traced a sort of a V-shaped pattern from there to now. 
So in the last quarter, which was the um, period ending in uh, September, the economy was, uh, again, according to official figures, 5% bigger than it was a year ago. For the year as a whole, it's probably going to be one of the few countries that will record positive growth. So it'll be about, it'll have growth of about 2%, which is obviously very disappointing because the official target before it was abandoned was 6 But next year, China, probably like everybody else, will have a a wild year, right? Because the comparisons with 2020 will be very, very flattering. So next year, we'll see growth probably around 8% or 9%, something like that. So on the face of it, it all looks pretty good. Mm. And I want to tackle that on the face of it. A lot of listeners listening to this probably will think, well, how can we trust those numbers? Doesn't China fiddle with its GDP numbers? All sorts of different things. What do you say to people who have doubts about it? Well, I think the, there are two things to say about China's GDP numbers. Actually, there are lots of things to say, but there are two, two things we can start with. I mean, the first is the official numbers are a little bit suspect. I mean, not all numbers in China are suspect, but these certainly are because they lack, mostly they lack any sense of volatility or any kind of cyclical influence. They look, almost look like they're manicured. The second thing to say about them is that China's GDP numbers are very unlike anybody else's. Because for us, GDP is what we measure after we've done all our spending and investment and consumption and what have you. Whereas in China, you start off with a target for GDP. So, well, this year was an exception. But you start off with a a target. And if it looks like the government isn't going to meet the target, then obviously it relies on local governments and provincial governments to basically step up usually infrastructure spending or credit creation or whatever to meet the target. So... You're, you're basically building into China's GDP a lot of uneconomic and uncommercial activity. So the comparisons of like for like don't really hold water. Having said that, the numbers, private estimates of, of China's GDP for this year are probably not too dissimilar from the government's. So we all think the economy plunged in the first quarter. Probably a lot of people think it went down much more deeply. But I think the recovery since then is something that most people kind of agree has happened. And it's probably not untypical or too much of an affront to incorporate the idea that it is growing on a roughly 5% growth path. So the sort of the days when China was able to grow officially by 6, 65 7%, I think people thought that was a little bit cooking the books a bit. But somewhere around 5 or thereabouts seems to be about right. Mm. And how do you think China has been able to recover so quickly? That V is not something that you see in a lot of the economic performances of countries around the world. Right. So I think the, I mean, the reason that China was able to sort of grow back, so to speak, as quickly as it has done, I think it's twofold. I mean, the first is the Chinese government, Chinese state is very production oriented, right? Leninist countries tend to be, they have a very, very sophisticated and complex system where they can basically switch production on and on relatively easily. So the production side of the economy was the first to recover under obviously quite close direction and control from from the central and local and provincial governments. The second thing, of course, is that conquering the virus or actually, you know, limiting it to sort of sporadic and random cases is absolutely key to getting people to lose their fear about congregating in transportation and, you know, entertainment and restaurants and hospitality places and so on. And so once you lose that fear, life can get back to normal or something 
that we used to call normal. We don't really know what normal is nowadays, but let's say within the context of what we think is normal, so transportation volumes have gone up, eating out at restaurants and going to entertainment, so on and so forth, is, has come back together pretty quickly. The beginning of October was the Golden Week holiday in China, and all of the reports suggest that you know people were very comfortable going on holiday, traveling, doing the things that they usually do. So it's encouraging, right? If, if eventually we all get control of the virus and the vaccines come on, as we think, then the lesson from China is that some things will, will come back pretty quickly. And are there areas where recovery hasn't been so strong, particularly to do with COVID, for example? I was talking to Professor Juan from the CEFR earlier on the podcast, and we were mentioning that China is being known in a bubble when it comes to international flights. No flights have really gone in, except for people who hold Chinese passports or some kind of exemption. Even those are have been cut down a lot. How are sectors like aviation and hospitality and tourism doing? Surely they're struggling. Yeah, so I should have said, and I'll therefore say it now because you've given me the opportunity to say that actually normalising in China doesn't actually mean things are normal in the way that they used to. So clearly, although, you know, airports are busier, as you said, it's internal flights rather than kind of international flights. And we also see really in China a bit of a dichotomy between the production side of the economy, which is now probably the levels of production in across a broad range of industries is higher than it was at the beginning of the year and the end of last year. But in consumption, things are not quite as rosy as they are on the output side. So when we look at kind of the constant flow of data, you know, month by month, shall we say, on house building or on investment in plant and equipment by companies and exports and so on. These things, well, exports are not doing, they're doing not badly, actually, under the circumstances. But the domestic kind of side of production actually is doing pretty well. But retail sales, automobile sales, housing transactions uh, for the mass, you know, the middle class urban market. I mean, these things are not really firing as well. Mm. But some of this may be due still to sort of the hangover of the pandemic. But some of it is also due to structural issues that predate the pandemic, but which the pandemic may have exacerbated. And your your 2018 book was excellent talking about these structural issues. These issues must be much more exacerbated by the pandemic itself. For example, you talk about China's debt as a result of tackling coronavirus. I mean, it must be skyrocketing. Yeah. So again, I would say in 2020, I mean, China is obviously not unique in this regard because debt, you know, is going up very, very quickly, pretty much all over the world. But it's of particular focus in China, because obviously it was it was pretty important before 2020. And it's going to continue to be important because this year, although the government has not kind of pressed its foot down on the kind of credit pedal as strongly as it did, say, in 2008, during the financial crisis, or indeed in 2014, when China had its own kind of made in China financial crisis. Nevertheless, credit is growing again at about 15 to 17% year over year. The economy is growing by, let's say, you know, 5%, 7% year over year. So that gap obviously means that the, the rate of debt to GDP is now accelerating again. And it's, it is becoming a problem. I mean, we've seen, for example, this year, about five state-owned enterprises default on interest payments and about 22 private companies. So 
it is quite nerdy, right, for a lot of people. But actually, in China, you didn't used to have defaults and bankruptcies. But now we're starting to see a kind of a growing incidence of defaults and bankruptcies, which in a way is a good thing because you actually want, if you want to have a kind of a market-ish type of system that, that kind of thrives within a kind of a state-controlled economy, you have to allow bad borrowers to go bust, basically, and for, for weak companies to be wound up. The trouble is a lot of these companies, particularly in the state sector, employ a lot of people. So there's one coal company that happens to be in trouble, at the, well, quite a few actually, but one big coal company in particular that's in trouble at the moment that has state-owned enterprise, has 180,000 employees. So there's no way that companies like that are going to be allowed to go bust or, or to be wound down. So it's a, it's a tricky problem for the government to manage, and it's going to define a lot of the next few years, I would say, how they do that. Mm. And speaking of job losses, I mean, we're seeing all over the world, and especially in the UK, unemployment go up. In the UK, it's predicted to be 3 million by the end of this year. Are job losses a problem in China as well? They certainly were in the early part of the year. I mean, China, again, is not unique. You know, many emerging countries have lousy labour market data, just because they tend to be focused on lots of other things rather than you know, employment markets and labour conditions. So the official estimate of unemployment in China went from about 5% to about 6%. But actually, you know, this excludes a lot of migrant workers. China has about 220 to 250 million migrant workers who work in the cities and towns. I mean, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of them, actually went back to their homes in the countryside because there was no work. And they were very slow to come back to work in their normal habitats in, in the cities. So at one stage, it's crudely estimated that unemployment in China may have gone up to about 25% in around February or March. We think that that's probably kind of rolled over now because we don't have huge amounts of anecdotal evidence to suggest that this is a, a kind of a lingering problem in major Chinese cities. But it's probable that unemployment is higher than the official numbers suggest and that China also, like we do, has a problem with its gig economy Mm. where there are lots of people that are underemployed or, you know, don't do, you know, that would like to work more hours than they actually can and do. And of course, it's also true that every single state council meeting that's taken place since the beginning of 2019 has labour market and jobs as their number one priority. And this was brought out again this year at the National People's Congress, which is the Chinese parliament, which met in meets once a year in May. So it was a big issue there. The fifth plenum of the Central Committee of the Chinese Communist Party just met a couple of weeks ago. Again, unemployment or labour markets were made a big kind of priority. So I think it's the kind of mood music that we're kind of listening to actually speaks to quite a high level of public concern about jobs, particularly for graduates. So China produces about 9 million graduates a year. Many of them cannot find 
suitable work for their qualifications. And indeed, a lot of graduates are being asked or told to go to the countryside to, quote, learn from the masses, unquote, which is uh, kind of a, a phrase that many of us will remember from uh, the bad days of the Cultural Revolution. So graduate employment in particular, I think, is a, a lingering problem for the government nowadays. Does that sort of unemployment, as well as other industries generally, people in industries who have been impacted the worst during this pandemic, does that create a legitimacy problem for the government? Are they politically vocal and powerful enough to create that sort of problem? Well, I think, yeah, it's a difficult question to ask because obviously the we've always kind of assumed that the government retains its legitimacy by virtue of the fact that it can deliver to China's citizens, you know, persistent and satisfactory economic growth in which living standards, particularly for the urban middle class and prosperity, are expected to keep rising. And, you know, so long as they do keep rising, one imagines that that legitimacy will persist. So clearly, I mean, the issue with jobs in China is a relatively recent phenomenon. I mean, before 2018, I don't think we wouldn't have said that there was a kind of it was a major issue. It certainly has become an issue. And I suppose mm. if you kind of speculate into the decade ahead and you imagine that unemployment were to become a more substantial problem for China and finding jobs for for new graduates becomes more difficult, then, yeah, that could certainly encroach into that legitimacy. That's that's for sure. And George, finally, some of our listeners may be feeling their blood boil throughout this entire podcast because, after all, COVID came from China. It was China's slowness in identifying and locking down that meant it was able to spread across the world. And now it seems that China is the first one out but is there a charitable reading that if there is to be a global recession, it would be better to have China's economy recovering than not, under a theory that the rising tide lifts all boats and China's economy forms such a large proportion of the world's GDP that a global recession will be utterly catastrophic if China was also going under a recession? Or is that too rosy a picture? Well, there is some substance in this. I mean, obviously, it's, it is better for the world economy if China is growing than if it isn't. It's slightly nuanced because China runs a balance of payments surplus, right? So it, in other words, it exports more than it imports. So ideally, China's economic activity benefits the world more if it imports more. In other words, if it ran a trade deficit like the United States does, it would do more for global growth than it does at the moment. But not to be churlish about it, it's obviously better that China is growing because it, it does add to to global demand at the margin. The problem is, I think there's many economists are having to find out the painful way nowadays in all parts of the world, and particularly now that everybody's attuned to sort of growing significance of geopolitics, economics isn't always the most important thing that people worry about, right? So we've seen this in, you know, elections in this country, in the United States and all over the place. I think while economists would welcome, you know, China's return to growth, shall we say, for a lot of people, you know, we've seen just two examples, really. I mean, this year, there's a very widely quoted survey by the Pew Research Organization across 14 countries that suggested that a record number of respondents in 14, so there were several thousand people in this survey, a record number of people, about over 60%, had an unfavorable view of China and were distrustful of Xi Jinping. And the other observation is that across China's kind of Belt and Road universe, which is really the kind of the fulcrum of China's foreign policy, 
really. There are a rising number of countries where there have been kind of political corruption scandals or problems in which kind of pushback against China's involvement in those countries through providing loans and so on has become problematic. So I think in Beijing, they are aware of this. They think that the world, you know, should be more grateful for (laughs) China's economic recovery. And they find it rather bizarre that it's not really welcomed in the way that they hoped it might. But, you know, that's just because we now have this kind of adversarial relationship between China and the West, in which people are focusing on things other than just trade and economics, to be honest. George Magnus, thanks very much. Thank you. And thank you to my other guests, Emily Fung and Professor Yan Zhonghuang. Thank you for listening to this episode of Chinese Whispers. I hope you enjoyed it. If you're listening to this podcast on the Best of the Spectator channel, remember that Chinese Whispers has its own channel as well. If you just search Chinese Whispers wherever you get your podcast from, you will always get the latest episode first there. If you have any feedback, positive or negative, but preferably constructive, please do email me at podcast at spectator.co.uk. And I'd also love it if you left a review or told your family and friends about the podcast. It's the way to help us grow. So thanks so much for listening and join us again next time. Bye.